All right, we are back. Uh, this one's going to be short, I think, Dave. I've, we promised this before, <laughs> but yeah. I think it's going to be short. And it's about Korea, and it's about the annexation of Korea by Japan in 1910. And I was telling you just before we started recording, this almost fits into the scramble, because this was sort of a scramble for Korea. And the way that Japan behaved is a lot like the other imperial powers behaved in Africa, where they were scrambling for Africa or the Pacific. Uh, and and it's, a, it's the end of that period, right? So it's Except just, that there was a war over it, right, between Japan and Russia. Yes, yes, exactly. So we have covered, uh, for people who want to go back and do their review, please do your review. Uh, students of this podcast. Uh, we covered the Russo-Japanese War. We also had a part of the series in World, uh, not World War Civ, but the Civilizations podcast where we they're called uh, Japan Joins the Imperialists. Mm. And we also included the so-called Tonghak Uprising, which was in Korea in response to the Japanese uh, creeping not not just creeping, but very rapidly growing imperialism. And those were, let me just make sure I have them here. Episodes 30, episode 30, Korea's Dilemmas from Donghang Uprising to Sino-Japanese War, 1894. Yeah, because the Sino-Japanese War was also over Korea. It's interesting because yes. we talk about the Sino-Japanese War and we talk about the Russo-Japanese War. Both of these wars were ultimately about Korea. <laughs> yes. Right? It's kind of like they were Korean War One, Korean War Two, and then the 1950 war was Korea War Three. I guess there were also through all the way throughout uh, pre-war, interwar, and post World War Two, which I guess we will tell you about now. So, uh, anything else before I launch into it, Dave? Your sources. Yes, uh, Jun Kil Kim, The History of Korea, and there's another one by Bruce Cummings, Korea's Place in the Sun. These are both general histories of Korea, uh, which I'm just extracting up until 1910. There's a lot more that we'll get back to after World War I is done. Mm -hmm. You remember, <clears throat> we did an episode called Japan Decides to Join the Imperialists. So what's going on in Korea is a version of the great game, I guess you could say, where you remember the original great game was this phrase that the British used for their competition. Their, they understood themselves to be in competition with Russia over Persia, the parts of the Persian Empire, Afghanistan, Central Asia. Because Britain was located apparently in India and... Uh, <laughs> and and Russia was located in Russia, and they were trying to colonize what was in between them. <laughs> okay. Uh, and in likewise, in Korea, Korea is in between uh, Japan and Russia. And so Russia has interests in colonizing Manchuria and Korea. Japan is interested in the same uh, pieces of the world, to, and they both want to colonize it. So how are they going to decide how to div divide it up? One of the things they want to do is get the recognition of the other imperialists. So in January 1902, leading up to the Russo-Japanese War, Britain 
makes the Anglo-Japanese alliance and recognizes Japan's claim to Korea. In August 1903, Japan goes to Russia and says, hey, why don't we why don't you recognize us as well? Russia says, no, how about we create a neutral zone in Korea north of the 39th parallel? Japan says no to this because Japan has al- had offered them that kind of deal in 1896, but they felt like it was too late now. So in 1904, Japan marches into Seoul, the capital of Korea, and demands uh, and gets the so-called Korea-Japan Protocol, the military occupation of Korean territory, and the king, the emperor of Korea, is forced to accept Japanese advisors. So this is that same kind of thing they're doing everywhere, right? They're mm-hmm. installing advisors. The, the Japanese do this in China as well, so they're playing the same game in Korea. And China, the we mentioned the Sino-Japanese War, because Korea was independent but kind of culturally Confucian, close to the Chinese model and also very close to China historically. Uh, and Japan wanted to kind of put an end to all that. And that was that was the wake-up call to China in the sense that Japan was telling China in the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-5, you can't protect your uh, allies. We are going to take whatever we want from China and from its allies. And that's what they did. Um, So one of Japan's methods was to create a pro-Japanese Korean group called the Il-Chin-Ho, the Society for United Progress. And some of the leaders of this were Song Pyeong-jun and Yi Yong-gu. Song was a ex-Korean official of the court, uh, exiled to Japan. He returned with the Japanese army as an interpreter. Yi Yong-gu was a part of the Tonghak uprising, but he branched from the movement to join the pro-Japanese organization. Japan always denied their connections to Il-Chin-ho, to the Society for United Progress, They, but they served as auxiliaries to the Jap- Japanese army during the Russo-Japanese War. They served as volunteer laborers on a railway, so they were very fanatical supporters, material supporters of the Japanese in every way they could think of. <laughs> they applied themselves to serving the Japanese enthusiastically. So the Russo-Japanese War we covered in an episode. In May 1904, the Japanese crossed the Yalu River to attack the Russian army. They take uh, the Port Arthur, which is now called Lushun in Dalian, which is in China near Korea, if you look at a map. We told the story of how the Russian fleet had to go all the way around the world only to get crushed in the Korea Strait by Japanese Admiral Togo Heihachiro. Togo was an admirer of that famous Korean Admiral Yi Sun-sin, which is before the time covered by our podcast. Yeah. But if you guys know about the Korean Admiral who famously defeated a Japanese fleet of 300 ships or so with, with 12 ships, I think. That's the story. His ships were bigger, but it's still one of the greatest, I guess, one of the greatest naval feats of all time, right? Mm-hmm. 1400s sometime. Anyway, back to today. In July 1905, Theodore Roosevelt sent his Secretary of War, William Howard Taft, to Tokyo to sign the Taft-Katsura Agreement. The U.S. recognizes Japan in Korea, and Japan, in return, recognizes the U.S. in the Philippines. 
<laughs> All this recognition going on. Isn't it touching, Dave? So touching. Uh, they get along so well. So moving. Uh, the U.S. Uh, arbitration of the war, which leads to some bad feelings, I suppose, from the Russians. Mm-hmm. It leads to the Portsmouth Treaty, in which Russia basically, among other concessions, concedes Korea to the Japanese. So the emperor, the second last emperor of Korea, Kojong, he's naive enough to believe that he signed some kind of friendship treaty with the Americans and believed that that meant they would help uh, against Japan. Of course, they didn't. He wrote a letter to Roosevelt. Roosevelt didn't reply. Um, there's also someone who, a, Kore- a prominent Korean who knows a lot, who speaks fluent English and knows a lot about the U.S., named Sing Man Rhee. Remember Already? that name? Uh-huh. Wow. He's... He's also uh, tries to talk to Theodore Roosevelt, but he has no luck there as well either. So remember that name, uh, listeners, or look it up and see. You'll you'll find some surprising things. But we'll be we'll be returning to Sigmenry in this podcast sometime in the next few years. So in Bruce Cummings's history of Korea, called Korea's Place in the Sun, he talks about how the imperialists generally accepted a racial theory that said the Japanese were superior to Korea. So he is, here's a long quote from him. Beatrice Webb, perhaps with her husband Sidney, not the most discerning of Fabian socialists in foreign lands, wrote in 1904 that Japan was a rising star of human self-control and enlightenment. On her trip to East Asia in 1911, she found the Chinese to be a horrid race, the Koreans also a horrid race. For Sidney, these were lowly vertebrates, who show us indeed what Homo sapiens can be if he does not evolve. But Beatrice liked the innovating collectivism of Japan and its enlightened professional elite, with its uncanny purposefulness and open-mindedness. Here was the benevolent bureaucracy of the future socialist state. (laughs) Yeah. So socialist racism. That's a sad combination for... Isn't it? To see. (laughs) But there's lots of it at this time. So immediately from 1905, even from before, there were uprisings against Japan and some big ones. Stephen Gowards, who has a book called Patriots, Pirates and Empire, something along that line. He says, citing Bruce Cummings and another writer, Anna Louise Strong, he says 15,000 insurgents were killed and 10,000 jailed between 1905 and 1907 fighting Japan. So that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big uprising. Was that the Righteous Army? Uh, the Righteous Army, yeah, and it's con- it's going to continue. And the Righteous Army continues all the way. <laughs> this is just the beginning. So in November 1905, Ito Hirobumi, who we've heard about in the podcast uh, episodes about Japan joining the imperialists, Ito Hirobumi was the former prime minister of Japan, arrives in occupied Seoul and demands a protectorate treaty in which Japan controls all foreign affairs through a position called a resident general. Very much like the Chinese had. Uh, Yeah, exactly. They were forced to accept a resident general. But uh, I'll tell you more about who they model their occupation after in about two minutes. Emperor Kojong says no, but his cabinet steals his seal and signs on his behalf on November 17th. So he is pretty much pushed out all the way. Uh, 
So they signed this five-point agreement. It's also known as the 1905 Protectorate Treaty. And some of the nationalist intellectuals lament this. They're very upset. One is named Chang Chiyon, and he published in the Imperial Capital newspaper the following lament. He says, those so-called ministers of the cabinet, not unlike dogs or pigs, pursuing their own glory and interests, sold our 4,000-year-old territory with our 500-year-old dynasty and thus have made 20 million people slaves. My compatriots, shall we live or shall we die? Alas, what deep sorrow, my people, my people. Um, some of the other officials that were in the cabinet or in the um, court committed suicide, including Grand Chamberlain Ming Yonghuan, other officials as well. And the Japanese model, as I promised to tell you, is actually the British in Egypt. So Ito Hirobumi styles himself as the Lord Cromer of Korea, and he becomes resident general in 1905. Immediately tries to get Korea into a huge amount of debt to Japan. So he borrows 10 million yen from Tokyo to do to start building some infrastructure that'll better facilitate the plunder of Korea. He builds a headquarters on a mountain overlooking downtown Seoul. And uh, Jung Kil Kim writes, the building, a Western style structure, was a reflection of Meiji imperialist mentality, a mimesis of 19th and 20th century colonial powers. So a mimesis is basically like a mimic, like a mimicry kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all right. So Ito Hirobumi puts together a collaborationist cabinet consisting of Korean officials from the former government to do Japan's bidding. And like you said, the Righteous Army uh, continues to escalate their warfare. They actually have some division because the army is actually ousted, right? They're, they're the courts, the Korean emperor's army is disbanded. So a lot of soldiers are now available for guerrilla war against the Japanese. It kind of reminds me of what they did in what the Americans did in Iraq after 2003. But even so with the the technology of of this period, you know, and a highly trained Japanese army, it's yeah. pretty impressive to have an irregular yeah, army or or militia that can even dare to fight them but this I, the righteous army i found out had a long tradition in korean history this isn't the first time they've done this yeah and they are um they are daring daring is the right word <laughs> um so one of the divisions though between ousted army people that join the righteous army and peasant peasants who join the righteous army is and their peasant leaders and their kind of intellectual leaders is whether they are willing to just, whether they're going to stick to fighting the Japanese only or whether they're willing to fight collaborators as well. And eventually they decide they are willing to fight Korean collaborators, which is, you know, it's a, it's always a, it's always a hard moral decision to make. Right. But um, like, I think, uh, I think that's one of, I think that's one of the Hezbollahs in Lebanon, one of their, things they say they they say like we are we are not we're not going to fight other lebanese no matter what so it's strictly strictly they're only willing to fight israel hmm. 
which means, you know, if Israel could get <laughs> if Israel could get some Lebanese fighters on their side, that they would be very happy. But so far that hasn't happened. And part of part of why that hasn't happened is because of that declaration, right? It's like, well, they're obviously patriots. We we're not gonna fight them. So it's a it's an interesting dilemma, but I also think probably the righteous army made the right call here too. So it must depend on circumstance. Anyway, meanwhile, there's also a nationalist intellectual movement, uh, the self-strengthening movement that we talked about in the Chinese context also happens here. The Chagango, uh, the self-strengthening society, they have newspapers. Uh, they make one kind of economic, I, I would say it's not a wise economic move. They try to raise money to pay the national debt. <laughs> Which is like, oh dear. that's not, <laughs> the, the Japan didn't put you in debt because you owe money. <laughs> Japan put you in debt so they could control and colonize you. So you can't pay that off if they, if they, if you pay it off, they'll make you borrow more, right? Yeah. Well, they identified the major problem. Yes. Yeah. Just that's true. <laughs> that's not, that's not a solution that's going to work. <laughs> You've got to cancel it. So Kojong sends, Emperor Kojong sends envoys to the International Peace Conference at The Hague. Dave, did you know there was an International Peace Conference in 1907? Yeah. Have we talked about that already or will we? Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. That's, that's one of the ones that uh, basically, uh, they, they were only semi-serious. Okay. And uh, the Germans pretty much torpedoed. I see. Well, no, they did come out with a few things. They outlawed dumb, dumb bullets and they agreed on the treatment of prisoners of war and things like that. I feel like we have maybe talked about this we, already. We did, yeah. Yeah. Wow. We've done so much that I can't even remember everything we did. <laughs> <laughs> I should start listening to this podcast, actually. Um, so, uh, so the Korean envoys are not recognized because Korea is considered a Japanese protectorate. <laughs> Talk about a moral hazard, eh? If you can colonize someone, then their delegates won't be recognized at the peace conference. So nonetheless, they're allowed to make a speech. So one of the delegates, Yi Weijong, was allowed to make a speech called A Plea for Korea. And the fact that he made that plea for Korea is what the Japanese resident general uses as a pretext to depose Emperor Kojong, who was forced to abdicate in July 1907. When Yi Wan Yong, one of the collaborators, becomes prime minister, a mob immediately burns down his house. And a couple of years later, a patriot uh, stabs him. He survives. So there's a lot of uh, what one of the authors calls Korean terrorism starting. So there's a this is this is this, that age, right, where there's anarchists running around shooting people and stabbing yep. people. And it's yeah. It's, it's a very interesting time. So Crown Prince Sun Zhang takes the throne and immediately signs a revised treaty, adding Japanese deputy ministers to all ministries of government. So it's just one step after another. The Righteous Army is scales up its fighting uh, after 1907. In, it's estimated in 1908. These are apparently Japanese records uh, that they killed 11,562 Righteous Army in 1908 alone. Uh, again, Gowan, Stephen Gowans estimates 14,000 Koreans killed fighting Japan between July 1907 to October 
And other Japanese accounts cited by Gowans are that 70,000 Korean guerrillas, I read this in Cummings as well, 70,000 Korean guerrillas engaged in 1,500 armed encounters, confrontations with the Japanese in 1908. So this wow. is a pretty big, yeah, that's what, five a day or something? That That's not a... That's not just a guerrilla movement. That's yeah. like a war. There was a band, a group of 10,000 uh, righteous army that got apparently within eight miles of Seoul in 1907. Uh, Cummings calls it, he said that these irregulars bedeviled the Japanese from 1907 to 1910. And the leaders include demobilized soldiers, officers, intellectuals, and of course, people from the veterans of the Tonghak. Uprising. For the most part, they were bands of less than 100, but in one case, they had a they amassed a force of 10,000 to attack Seoul, but they didn't. They got pretty close, but not quite. One of the example one of the examples of the resistance leaders is an old scholar named Cho Ikion. He wrote various poems <laughs> about resistance, and he was captured in 1906. Uh, and starved to death in jail. He wrote his own epitaph, which I think was a little harsh on himself. Uh, so I, I think we should correct the record here. Uh, he says, Cho Ikyon wrote, I was unable to repel the traitors, dispose of our nation's enemies, restore our nation's sovereignty, recover our territory, or hold back our 4,000-year-long righteous way of civilization from falling to the ground. I think that was a little too harsh. I think yeah. he, you know? Yeah. But I guess what, we'll, yeah. I guess I understand. <laughs> but you weren't a failure, Cho. <laughs> we at the World War Civ, we salute you. Um, the Japanese uh, are very ruthless. The, like you said, the technology is a mismatch. They devote a lot of resources to crushing the guerrilla movement. The numbers decline from their peak of 70,000 in 1908 to 25,000 in 1909 and go below 2,000. Uh, in 1910 and most of the insurgents that flee that manage to flee they flee to manchuria again if you look at a map it's it's neighboring territory in china so here's another terrorist incident in may 1908 durham white stevens an american who works for the japanese foreign ministry he's headed to dc from oakland california he's getting on a train to lobby for japan when a couple of korean patriots shoot him and kill him wow uh, there's yeah i know <laughs> their reach is far yeah no kidding <laughs> don't think you can don't think you're safe anywhere uh, in 1909 uh an chang ho a korean nationalist organizes the new people society mm. the sin min ho to support armed resistance from the diaspora some of the other nationalist writers of the time are sin che ho and cho nam son this is probably more meaningful to our korean listeners of which i know there are some uh, in june 1909 ito hirobumi resigns as resident general his critics in japan say he's going too slowly <laughs> yeah so his last thing is to try to go to manchuria to get their approval for the outright to get the russian approval for outright annexation of korea so he goes to um he goes to manchuria to meet the russian finance minister vladimir kokos kokovsov 
to try to get their approval, and a Korean patriot named An Chonggon shoots and kills him as well. So Ito Hirobomi, Durham White Stevens, both uh, victims of the Korean patriotic assassination squads. Um, meanwhile, the Il Chin Ho, led by Song Pyeon Jun and Yi Yong as I mentioned, they circulate a petition for the voluntary union of Korea and Japan. Mm. <laughs> Uh, equal parties, to be sure. Japan uh, responds to this petition by sending two army divisions. The new resident general, Terauchi Masatake, builds up the Japanese gendarmerie, the Kenpei, to 6,000 plus. And he and Wang Yon, Yi Wang Yon, the prime minister who survived stabbing, sign the annexation and the ending of the emperor's, the Choson dynasty on August 22nd, 1910. So some notes about Japanese colonization, because it's pretty intense, and I would call it atrocity dense. Um, Korean political organization disbanded. Newspapers and public gatherings are prohibited. Uh, To quote uh, Gowans, Koreans were forced to speak Japanese, take Japanese names, and worship at Shinto shrines. Shinto is not a religion of any place besides japan so it's a it's the imposition of the japanese religion the state religion on korea economically huge blocks of land were transferred into japanese hands agriculture was steered away from korean to japanese needs 60 percent of korea's harvested rice was exported to japan by 1938 and the estimate was that japanese ate seven times more rice per capita than koreans and since rice is what the they eat, you can imagine the malnutrition that's also being imposed. There's a economic, I guess, wage scale that's racial. Uh, Japanese workers in Korea get two yen per day. Taiwanese get one and Koreans get 0.66 of a yen. This is in 1938. They are conscripted to labor in Japan. <clears throat> one in 17 Koreans was in Japan by 1941. And if one in eight had been relocated outside Korea to different parts of the Japanese empire. And if you count inside Korea as well, like internal displacement, 20% of all Koreans were displaced from where they were born or from their villages or their cities by this time. Uh, By the end of World War II, one third of Japan's industrial labor force was Korean. So this Korea was, you know, if you want to talk about crown jewels or whatever it is, like Korea, colonizing Korea was a big, big deal for Japan. And uh, they were really brutal about it. In terms of the capital capitalism of Japan and their colonial capitalist development, Cummings writes this. He says, colonial authorities passed laws in 1910 inhibiting the formation of Korean firms with limits on how much paid up capital could be Korean. This came at a time when Japanese capital was already quite predominant. Japanese owned firms accounted for 70% of the total, Japanese Korean firms for 10.5% and purely Korean firms for only 18%. So in terms of Japan's hands-on approach to colonialism, there's a couple of metrics. One is the way the railways are built. The South Manchurian Railway Company, to quote Cummings, set up in 1906, was the first of the great companies organized to promote Japanese interests on the continent. The big Japanese bank supplied its capital and the bureaucrats supplied everything else. 
to quote from a South Manchurian railway company, the traveler journeys in the company's cars and stops at the company's hotels, which are heated by coal from the company's own electric works. If you're unfortunate enough to fall sick along the way, the traveler is certain to be taken to one of the company's hospitals. What do they call that, Dave? Vertical integration? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. Every every step of the way is controlled by the company, so they capture all of the value. They just didn't mention owning the mines that the <laughs> yeah. coal comes from, but which they probably do. They did, yeah. Uh, so the resistance continues. 1912 by 1912, Japan has 50,000 Korean rebels in jails, and by 1918, which we'll come back for, there were 140,000 Koreans in Japanese uh, dungeons. There are about 20 million Koreans total, and Japan sent 250,000 bureaucrats to administer it, plus the army division. So this, if you look at the metrics of like French or British in India or Algeria or whatever, the footprint of Japan in Korea is much bigger. So they are not leaving anything to chance. <laughs> and even while they have collaborators, they are relying on a lot of Japanese personnel to uh, make this colonization work. So um, I will conclude with a summary of Japanese colonialism of this time by a Korean patriot. I'm being a little mischievous here. Uh, this Korean patriot is quoted by Gowans and he writes this, he says, 10 years after the annexation in 1910, Korea had become a gigantic dungeon, no better than those of the Middle Ages. The Japanese colonists used naked military power to suppress the Korean people's aspirations to become free again. The Japanese took away our freedom of press, our freedom to hold meetings, form organizations, and freedom to march. They took away our human rights and properties. The Korean people formed secret organizations, independence fights, mass enlightenment activities, and had built up considerable potential energy against the decade of plunder and exploitation by the Japanese. The summary is by a Korean patriot named Kim Il-sung. Another, <laughs> another, another name that we will come back to. <laughs> you, you probably don't even need to look that name up, but uh, if you do, you may, you may look it up to prepare for our future episodes on this topic. We will come back to Korea after the war in 1919. Uh, there's a big event on March 1st, the reading of the Korean Declaration of Independence in Pagoda Park in Seoul. We will pick it up around then um, you know i'm really surprised by uh how ungradualist the japanese approach was yeah yeah like exactly. i understand the economic stuff yeah and and the control of infrastructure and and all of that it's the cultural you know the, the cultural yeah. genocide that they're trying to yeah. pull off here that strikes me as really over the top yeah, I think they really felt like they had to catch up, right? They had to do everything really fast to try to catch up to the other imperialists. Well, no, Korea has a place in Japanese history that goes back centuries. They invaded mm -hmm. twice in the 1500s, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And sent massive armies to try and conquer Korea. Yeah. So their their ambitions are wow. Yeah, and Korea's suffering is not over. <laughs> by no, any means. by far no.